And welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today we've got a new one for you. It is on Parkinson's disease medications. Lots to cover as always. But before we get started, please check out ninjanerd.org. It's our own website. We uh, just updated it actually, so it looks a little bit different. But we're continually adding notes and illustrations and everything you need with these videos, including our, our whiteboard lectures and our podcasts. So please check that out and subscribe. Yeah, man, please do check those out. I definitely agree. I think it's really important. I think that they really aid in helping you guys to understand what we're talking about through this podcast because we kind of go through these a little bit quicker than we would on our YouTube videos. So definitely grab those, sit down and kind of take a listen and enjoy uh, the beautiful voice of Rob today and me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just got over a cold, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm, I'm decongested. I don't sound so uh, horrible right now. Yeah, uh, taking a lot of Mucinex, Mucinex D. <laughs> yeah, you got to decongest those sciences. <laughs> got the Flonase going. I'm feeling, I'm feeling much better today. So we're going to have a, a lot of fun as usual. So the first thing we have to do with this podcast is we got to talk about Parkinson's disease. We have to first lay out the normal physiology. What, what should happen? Okay. And then when we, we'll, we'll transition then into the pathophysiology. What's happening in Parkinson's disease that, that's causing things to go wrong? And then we need to treat that. So let's start then, Zach, first talking about normal physiology. What should happen, especially in regards to the basal ganglia? Yeah, so I think when we talk about Parkinson's disease, kind of Rob laid out that the basal ganglia, um, there's a lot of different components of that. And anatomically, obviously, they sit, they're kind of like these gray matter structures, they're gray, you know, nuclei that sit deep within the cerebral cortex. Um, so obviously, this contains like the lentiform nucleus. Um, this contains things like the, um, the thalamus and the subthalamus and the caudate nucleus. And there's even another structure called the substantia nigra that's a very important component here. So a lot of different structures are really involved in this process. But there's really, when it comes down to it, two particular pathways that are involved here. One is called the direct pathway. And really what I want you to think about is that the basal ganglia are kind of this structure that communicates with the motor cortex. So your motor cortex is kind of what really is responsible for the voluntary or the volitional decision to be able to perform a motor movement. And what happens is the basal ganglia kind of help us to really fine tune, modulate that motor movement to where it's not not super excessive. In other words, you don't overshoot a motor movement. So if you're taking and drinking a cup of coffee right now, you don't smash it into your face or you don't undershoot it. So you don't bring it close enough to your face. So it's really helping to just smooth out that motor movement. So there's two pathways, direct pathway, indirect pathway. Keep it simple. Really what happens is the cortex is getting ready to make a decision to move a muscle. So it has to communicate with the basal ganglia. So it sends down these fibers to the, from the cortex to the striatum, which is the caudate nucleus and the outer part of the lentiform nucleus, which is called uh, the putamen. And now when it actually kind of sends these fibers down, it actually sends stimulatory glutamate fibers that activates the striatum, right? And so whenever the striatum becomes stimulated, it actually sends these kind of axons that go all the way to the inner part of the lentiform nucleus, which is called the globus pilitis internus, and it releases an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA. GABA will then inhibit the actual neurons that are present in the globus pilitis internus. If it inhibits it, the neurons there will not fire, so they won't send their actual signals from the globus pilitis internus to the thalamus. If that then occurs, then you're not going to allow for inhibition of the thalamic neurons. And so instead, they will be stimulated. 
If they become stimulated, the thalamic neurons will then send their information back up to the cortex. But guess what thalamic neurons are? They're glutaminergic. They're stimulatory neurons. So they stimulate the cortex and say, hey, really increase the activity of this motor movement. And so that's kind of the basic concept of the direct pathway. Really, what I want you to associate with this is that when the cortex interacts with the actual basal ganglia via the direct pathway, it's trying to really stimulate kind of the motor movements to enhance them, to perform perform wanted motor movements. When it performs it via the indirect pathway, it sends information from the cortex to the striatum. And again, this is going to be stimulatory neurons, glutaminergic neurons. When it activates the striatal neurons, they then send information to the globus pilatus externus, just a little bit outside of the globus pilatus internus. Whenever these neurons are actually, again, from the striatum or stimulated, they release GABA onto the globus pilatus externus, which inhibits the globus pilatus externus neurons. So now the globus pilatus externus neurons don't actually fire. And if they don't fire, they don't send this kind of uh, uh, inhibitory signal to what's called the subthalamus. So now the subthalamus is actually going to be in this situation released from inhibition. So it becomes stimulated. If it becomes stimulated, it sends glutaminergic or stimulatory fibers back upwards to the globus pilatus internus and stimulates the globus pilatus internus. If you stimulate the globus pilatus internus, now these neurons in the globus pilatus internus will release a lot of inhibitory uh, neurotransmitters like GABA onto the thalamus. That will inhibit the thalamus. And now the thalamus, which has neurons that are stimulatory neurons, glutaminergic neurons, will not be able to stimulate the cortex. They'll kind of inhibit the cortex. And that's designed to be able to inhibit any kind of undesired or unwanted motor movement when you're trying to perform a particular movement. So in other words, if I want to bring a cup of coffee up to my face to drink it, I want my my flexors at the elbow to be activated. And I want my extensors around the elbow to actually be inhibited so that I can perform that particular motion. And so that's really the concept here. Now, what's really, really important to remember here is, again, direct pathway, cortex, if we kind of really simplify it for us, Rob, direct pathway, cortex to the basal ganglia to stimulate movement. Indirect pathway, cortex to the basal ganglia, just a longer route to inhibit kind of a particular motor movement. Now, there's another thing that kind of modulates that, and this is called the nigrostriatal pathway. So basically, it's the substantia nigra. They have a lot of dopaminergic neurons, and they send information to the basal ganglia to really enhance all motor movement. So really, all it's trying to do is just really increase the intensity of motor movement. So if we release this kind of dopamine from the substantia nigra onto the actual striatum, all I really want you to do is it enhances the activity of the direct pathway. It tries to inhibit the indirect pathway, but if you think about it, the indirect pathway is supposed to inhibit motor movement. From getting this excessive amount of dopamine, you're trying to inhibit that, but you actually lead to an increase in movement in general. So what I really want you to think is that the dopamine from the nigrostriatal pathway is really designed to increase motor movement, okay? Now, here's where the actual Parkinson's disease comes into play. When a patient has Parkinson's disease, they destroy those dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. Now those neurons that are going to the striatum and releasing dopamine, that's supposed to influence the direct and indirect pathway. Basically, what did I say? Increase the motor movement, increase the intensity of the motor movement. You lost that, my friends. So now you don't have the actual dopamine from those neurons stimulating the actual striatum involved in the direct and indirect pathway and motor movement really kind of decreases significantly. 
So that's what you kind of see in these patients who have a Parkinson's disease, Rob. Well, uh, right. So you, and you actually would see this more commonly than I would, but they're very slow in performing particular motor movements. They have that bradykinasia, or maybe it's so bad that they can't even really move at all. And they have the akinasia. They have difficulty being able to initiate motor movements and stop. So on top of that, if they're kind of like having difficulty maybe moving, if you have them try to stop on a dime, they have difficulty being able to stop at that kind of motor movement. And so you see that really as the result of that loss of dopaminergic neurons. Now, I think most people get confused and say, okay, well, what about the tremors and the uh, the rigidity and stuff like that? Where, where does that come into play? And it's really straightforward. So here's what I want you to make it kind of think about. Whenever you think about the basal ganglia, which are involved in the direct indirect pathway, which modulate motor movement, right? And then dopamine helps to increase motor movement. Here's what I want you to think. Acetylcholine also has an effect on the actual basal ganglia, on the stratum. And it does the exact opposite of dopamine. So it kind of wants to kind of perform a little bit of an opposing action from dopamine. So you kind of get like this seesaw effect here of dopamine and acetylcholine. So now if a patient has Parkinson's disease, you destroy the dopamine. So now the dopamine is decreased. So you have a relative increase in the amount of acetylcholine that's present within the actual basal ganglia now. And so because of that, you actually start seeing this kind of tremory type of effect. You start seeing some of the rigidity type of effect as a result of this. And so really the tremors and the rigidity is due to a relative increase in acetylcholine because of a drop in the dopamine from the destruction of those neurons. Does that make sense, Rob? It makes perfect sense. And, and if anyone else is more of a visual learner, I am a visual learner. Absolutely. And, and a lot of the times I need to see this up on the whiteboard. Well, you're you're in luck because we have this video available <laughs> on YouTube. We've covered it. So if you need a little bit more, I don't know, I guess a visualization of this pathway, everything is available on YouTube for this. But again, if this is a really helpful review, I think it's perfect just going, you know, listening to this podcast in your spare time, getting this information down. Uh, but just know that this does exist as a YouTube video as well. Absolutely. And I think it's really kind of just, I think the more of the goal here is to understand that really when we talk about physiology and pathophysiology, it's really just coming down to the simplicity of things. If you guys, if you don't remember all of this, just remember direct pathway stimulates motor movement. Indirect pathway, it's designed to inhibit unwanted motor movement. And then your kind of dopaminergic effect is to increase the intensity of motor movement. And then your cholinergic pathway is designed to be able to oppose that of the dopamine. And so in Parkinson's disease, you destroy the dopamine, you lose the increase in the intensity of motor movement, akinasia, bradykinesia, slow and difficulty initiating motor movements and stopping motor movements. And then due to the relative increase in acetylcholine, you also kind of get like this agitation and activation of the basal ganglia, weirdly because of the unopposed dopamine. And so then you get the tremors and the rigidity. And so that's really what it comes down to. And I think that kind of leads us nicely into the next step of this podcast. Absolutely. So we have to now, let's get into it. We have to talk about these medications. We've, we've laid the groundwork. We've talked about the physiology, the path physiology, what things are going on really at that like molecular level. But now we have to figure out, all right, let's treat these patients. Let's help them out. So what do we have to do? We have to figure out these drugs, talking about these drugs, their mechanism of action, and then their indications. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind the scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. 
Combining their expertise and training, doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. So I think that kind of like needs, it leads us to the next point, right? So, so when we talk about the pharmacology, our approach here, um, I think it's really simple. So when you, when you think, when you break down the pathophysiology to the simplistic concept that there's not a lot of dopamine because you're destroying the neurons that releasing dopamine, what if I somehow just increased dopamine? Wouldn't that kind of help me out and kind of fix my problem? That would definitely fix like the akinesia, the bradykinesia, the difficulty in, you know, being able to perform and initiate movements. It would help that part. It wouldn't really maybe fix as much of the tremors and the rigidity, um, but it would help, you know, the kind of slowness of the movement difficulty being able to perform motor movements. So that's what I'm going to try to take us as is like, okay, now let's increase dopamine. Now, how in the world can I increase dopamine? All right. One way is when dopamine is released from the, the neurons of the substantia nigra, uh, it actually acts on dopamine receptors in the, in the actual, uh, what's called the striatum. So if you were to kind of like molecularly zoom in on the striatum, there's going to be neurons there that have dopamine receptors. And when dopamine binds onto those receptors, it's either going to work via the direct or the indirect pathway and stimulate the pathway or inhibit the pathway, right? Straightforward. If I give a drug that acts like dopamine and binds onto the dopamine receptors and has the same effect as dopamine, wouldn't that be pretty stinking cool? Absolutely. So that's where dopamine agonists come into play. And these can actually be relatively utilized. I think in patients like less than 65 or 75 years of age, it actually could be in like a mild kind of Parkinson's disease. You could actually consider this a part of first line treatment, but this is going to be drugs like, um, your ergots. I would say try to stay away from these. They're, they're not as commonly utilized as more in this disease process, but this would be like bromocryptine. Um, and then your non ergots, which are way more commonly utilized, such as repenerol and, um, primipaxol. These are going to be the drugs that can act like dopamine, bind onto those receptors, increase the actual kind of similarly effect of dopamine in the striatum. So then you increase the direct pathway, increase the indirect pathway, and then you help to improve motor movements. Okay. That's one. Another one is what if I tried to take and say, okay, I did destroy some of the substantia nigra neurons, but I got a little bit left. I got maybe, I'm just making a ballparking here. You had a hundred substantia nigra neurons and I destroyed about 50. I got 50 left. Let me try to increase the amount of dopamine that's being released from those remaining dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. That's what I'm going to do. So one of the ways that I can do that is I can actually kind of use this drug called amantadine. And amantadine is kind of interesting because its mechanism of action isn't completely highlighted out. There's just a couple thoughts of how it does this. But really, it may work to increase the dopamine release. So it may cause the vesicles that actually contain the dopamine in those substantia nigra neurons to just bind with the membrane quicker and release more of the dopamine. On top of that, once the dopamine is released into the synapse and binds onto the receptors, afterwards, it either gets kind of like degraded or it gets taken back up into the neuron. It gets recycled. What if I blocked the reuptake and I kept more of the dopamine out in the synapse? It could bind onto more receptors. That's theoretically what the amantadine is doing is it's increasing the release of dopamine and then blocking the reuptake. All of these things is keeping dopamine higher amounts in the synapses to bind onto the dopamine receptors, kind of increasing the pathways through the direct and indirect pathway, increasing motor movement. 
Really, I would say that these aren't commonly utilized. I'd say the only time that you would utilize these is if a patient is in what's called an akinetic crisis, which is a really scary thing. They're not moving. They're at risk of kind of like in these situations, um, uh, pneumonia, aspiration, pneumonia. Um, sometimes they're kind of, they're, they're locked up in these kinds of positions that they can be in what's called rhabdomyolysis. So pretty severe kind of situation, but usually it's an adjunct. It's an add on therapy. So we'll talk about the next one called L dopa, which is the most commonly utilized drug. Um, but we'll usually give them this drug in an akinetic crisis in combination with L dopa because you're going to get, again, more dopamine in that synapse. All right. So that leads us to the next drug that we can actually kind of use those remaining neurons to increase the dopamine production. This drug is very commonly utilized, and this is called L-DOPA. Now, L-DOPA is a very interesting drug that when you take it orally, it actually, again, crosses the GIT. When it crosses the GIT and gets into the blood, there is this enzyme that's present in the blood, and it's called uh, peripheral dopa decarboxylase. And what this enzyme does is, is it unfortunately will break down some of the dopa that gets into the bloodstream across your GIT. It breaks it down into dopamine. Now you might be like, okay, oh, that's perfect. And you can just take the dopamine into the neurons and you're good to go. Right, Zach? No. Unfortunately, that dopamine doesn't really get absorbed across the blood-brain barrier. Um, so that's the problem. And so if we could take a lot of the L-dopa that we absorb across the GIT and then we convert into dopamine, I'm not going to have much to actually absorb or move across the blood-brain barrier. So that's the problem. So then that's where you know a lot of intelligent individuals said, okay, what if we came up with a drug that I can give with L-dopa? And when I give it, that crosses the GIT, but then I give another drug to block the dopa decarboxylase so it doesn't break it down into dopamine so that all the L-dopa or most of the L-dopa can get to the brain and cross the blood-brain barrier. Because only L-dopa can, dopamine can't. They were like, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea. So then they came up with a drug combo. And this is a very commonly utilized combo. So it's L-dopa, which is the one that's actually going to cross the blood-brain barrier, plus carbidopa. And carbidopa blocks the dopa decarboxylase to prevent the breakdown of L-dopa into dopamine. That's pretty cool, right, Rob? I think it's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I love that mechanism. I know. It's like, it's really awesome how people even came up with that thought process. But nonetheless, that's one way. So if we get the L-dopa that crosses the blood-brain barrier, gets taken up into those substantia nigra neurons, gets converted into dopamine, and now you have a lot of dopamine in those remaining neurons, and you can release a lot of that dopamine into the synapse and then bind onto the receptors and the striatum to increase the direct and indirect pathway and improve motor movement. So it's a pretty cool concept. There's another way. So there's another enzyme, unfortunately, in the periphery that we found as well, and this is called COMT enzymes. So these are called catechol O-methyltransferase enzymes. Now, when L-dopa gets taken across the GIT, gets into the blood, it can't get broken down by dopa decarboxylase into dopamine. But guess what else? It can get broken down via another enzyme in the peripheral blood called catechol O-methyltransferase, which will break that sucker down into an inactive metabolite. Okay, so like 3-O-methyl-dopa. And so now this... 3-O-methyl-dopa, which is kind of an inactive metabolite, can't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so now we don't have the L-dopa to get into the substantia nigra neurons to make dopamine. So now I can give another drug called a catechol O-methyltransferase, but it has to be peripheral because there's two of these enzymes. There's one that's in the periphery and then there's one in the central nervous system. So that's an important thing to remember. If I give this drug, I give L-dopa, and when I give the L-DOPA, I give this other drug, which is a COMT inhibitor. And this is going to be your um, intercapone, 
and your tolcopone. Now, when you give these drugs, what they will do is, is they'll inhibit the COMT enzyme. Now you can't break down L-DOPA into 3-O-methyl-DOPA, and you have lots and lots of L-DOPA present now to cross the blood-brain barrier, to get into the actual substantia nigra neurons, to make dopamine and release onto the striatum to increase the direct and indirect pathway and increase motor movement. So that's a pretty cool thing. Now, with that being said, when we give L-DOPA, we primarily give it with carbidopa. You're probably asking the question, well, when do we give the peripheral COMT inhibitors? Not too often, to be honest with you. Usually later in the stages of the disease. So basically as patients get later and later and later in their stages of disease, they can experience something that we'll talk about in a little bit called the on-off phenomenon, where they're on levodopa and carbidopa and their symptoms are great, but then once the drug starts kind of wearing off and now they don't have as much dopamine in their synapses, boom. Uh, they kind of go into that off phase. So now they're off the dopamine effect and they have akinasia or bradykinesia or hypokinesia and all their symptoms kind of come back and they're so dependent on it. So sometimes we can utilize this as an add-on agent in those on-off phenomenon. Okay, so we got increasing the dopamine, um, increasing the dopamine release from the actual available neurons in the substantia nigra. That'd be the L-dopa. You can combine this with the carbidopa. That's the most common combo, Okay. And then the other thing is if patients experience the on-off phenomenon, you can give them the L-dopa-carbidopa combo plus a COMT inhibitor if they're starting to exhibit the on-off phenomenon. Okay. Next thing I can do is, so I either had a, a pretended I was dopamine, so a dopamine agonist. I increased the amount of dopamine available within the remaining substantia nigra neurons. The third thing I can do is I can decrease the breakdown of dopamine. So whatever dopamine that those neurons are releasing, maybe I don't change that. I just prevent them from getting broken down in the synapses or in the neurons so that I keep a lot of the dopamine readily available to bind onto the dopamine receptors and increase the indirect, indirect, pa direct pathway and then improve motor movement. So what are these drugs? There's two drug categories. One may sound familiar. One is the COMT inhibitors. You're like, exactly. That was, I thought that was in the peripheral. Remember I told you there's a peripheral and a central one. So the central COMT uh, enzymes, again, they do the same thing. They break down the L-DOPA that's available in the actual kind of central nervous system. They break it down into an inactive metabolite. So it can't be converted into dopamine. And that's a problem because now we have less dopamine available. What if I gave a drug that inhibited that enzyme, the central one? There's only one drug. So remember, intercapone and tolcopone inhibited the peripheral COMT. Only tolcopone will inhibit the central COMT. Downside is we don't often give tolcopone, and the reason why is it's super, super hepatotoxic. can literally cause acute liver failure. So not commonly utilized for that unfortunate reason. But nonetheless, if we inhibited that enzyme, it wouldn't break down the L-DOPA. We would have a lot of L-DOPA in the actual neurons to make dopamine, release dopamine into the actual central nervous system uh, area, and then activate the direct indirect pathway. The other thing, there's another enzyme called MAOB inhibitors, monoamine oxidase type B inhibitors. This is going to be your selagiline and risagiline. These are also not commonly utilized as well, um, but the way that they work is Whenever the dopamine is released from the neuron, it gets taken up, right, back into the neuron to get, so it gets recycled. When it gets recycled, there's two pathways that it can go to. One is it may go right back into a vesicle and get reutilized. That's a great thing because now we don't break that dopamine now. We have more dopamine that can actually get released again. Or it can diverge 
and go into what's called the mitochondria. And the mitochondria has this enzyme called the monoamine oxidase B. And that breaks the dopamine down. Now the dopamine can't be recycled. It can't be put back into the synaptic vesicle so that whenever that nerve gets stimulated again, it releases the dopamine. So now I just lost that dopamine if I break it down. What if I inhibit that enzyme? I inhibit the monoamine oxidase B enzyme. Now, all of the dopamine that gets taken back up into the neuron, none of it gets broken down and all of it gets recycled and put back into the synaptic vesicle so that now I have, again, all that dopamine ready to be released from the substantia nigra neurons onto the actual dopamine receptors, activate the direct indirect pathway and improve motor movement. That would be uh, pretty ideal, right? We don't commonly utilize this drug, but it can be utilized as an add-on therapy in that on-off phenomenon, again. So when we talk about these on-off phenomenon, again, which we'll get into in just a little bit, really add-on therapies that you can consider to L-DOPA, Carbidopa, which is your primary drug regimen, is going to be your COMT inhibitors, peripheral, peripheral, remember, that's the primary one, or MAOB inhibitors. If they're in a complete akinetic crisis, amantadine would be the add-on therapy. For the dopamine agonists, you can add those on. Those are also a decent add-on in the on-off phenomenon as well, but they also could be primary first-line therapy in younger patients who have mild Parkinson's disease. In other words, young being less than like 65 years of age. Okay, that takes us through all of the drug categories, Rob, uh, particularly with respect to dopamine, but there's another thing. So I told you that if we increase dopamine through these mechanisms, whether it be acting like dopamine, increasing dopamine availability in the remaining neurons, or decreasing the breakdown of dopamine, what if I, that's fixing the kind of bradykinesia, akinesia, difficulty in being able to initiate motor movements. What about the tremors and the rigidity? Zach, you didn't fix that. Well, remember I told you that the tremors and the rigidity aspect was a relative increase in acetylcholine due to the decrease in what? Dopamine. Well, if I try to fix the dopamine, that may be helpful, but I really want to kind of block some of the excessive cholinergic activity. So that's where anticholinergics come into play here to treat tremors and rigidity. Because if I block the acetylcholine, then I restore the balance, if you will, between the dopamine and the acetylcholine and the striatum. So if I increase the dopamine, I kind of block some of the acetylcholine, I may bring that seesaw back up to a level point. So one of the ways that I can do this is there's a couple different drugs. I think the main ones to remember here is going to be what's called uh, benztropine um, and another one called trihexyphenidyl. Um, but those would be other drugs that we could add on uh, in combination with the L-DOPA, carbidopa. Um, and again, akinetic crisis, amantadine, on-off phenomenon. You could do the dopamine agonist. You could do the COMT inhibitors. You could do the MAOB inhibitors. Or if a patient's young, mild, you can do the primary dopamine agonists by themselves. These would be add-on therapy for the tremors and the rigidity. But I think that would take us through, Rob, the uh, kind of the primary aspects of this disease process and how we can utilize drugs to alter the biochemistry there in those areas of the brain. These drugs are all amazing. They, they, they truly make such a difference in a lot of patients' lives. But unfortunately, with any drug comes uncertain. Uh, side effects. Yeah. Uh, so then that's, that's just the unfortunate part of taking drugs, but they all have them. 
Uh, so we have to now move into the adverse drug reactions. What can happen with these drugs, Zach? Um, especially some of the most common ones like L-DOPA and Carbidopa. Yeah. So I think what's really nice about the adverse effects is that they're relatively similar among all these drug classes, which is outstanding and makes our lives um, a million times easier. So let's start off with the most commonly utilized one like that Rob highlighted, which is the L-DOPA. So L-DOPA is definitely going to be the most commonly utilized drug for patients who have Parkinson's disease. So one of the big things that you can see in pretty much, and I'm not kidding, like almost all of these drugs, you're going to see a similar effect. And since it's the more commonly utilized one, you should be able to recognize that common adverse effects. When you increase L-DOPA, you theoretically are going to get an increase in dopamine in multiple different areas of the brain, so your central nervous system, and potentially in the periphery, right? And so some of the things to watch out for, especially in the periphery, if some of that L-DOPA gets broken down to dopamine in the periphery, what can dopamine do in your peripheral kind of like parts of your body, not in the central nervous system? And so it can have an effect on your heart. Um, it can actually kind of like increase the heart rate. So it can actually cause patients to become tachycardic. Um, it also can cause maybe some degree of a vasodilatory effect on your, um, your, your blood vessels. And so it may potentially even cause hypotension. Uh, so some of the things that you would just kind of want to be watching out for is potentially any kind of like arrhythmias, especially tachycardia. And then it may cause a little bit of a vasodilatory effect on your blood vessels, which may cause, um, hypotension, but more commonly postural. So a patient who's kind of like sitting down and then all of a sudden they get up, they kind of develop this dizziness or this almost like presyncopal kind of uh, state. So that's one thing to watch out for. But then let's get into the effect of like what it can do on the central nervous system. So we get a lot of L-DOPA across the uh, blood-brain barrier, gets into the central nervous system. What could it potentially do? Well, one of the things is that it can actually act on something called the um, the emetic center. So there's dopamine receptors on this kind of like vomiting center in our medulla. Um, and so there's this interesting concept. So if you get a lot of L-DOPA, and then it gets into the central nervous system, maybe gets converted to dopamine, hits those dopamine receptors on the emetic center in the medulla, what could you potentially trigger? A nausea and then worsening, vomiting type of reflex as a result of that. So that's really interesting. And you know what's really cool is that guess what we can give to patients who have nausea and vomiting? You can give them anti-dopaminergic. So these are what we'll talk about maybe in the future called antipsychotics. Um, so we can actually give those to block the effects of that kind of nausea, vomiting effect. The other aspect of this is that patients can develop a lot of, um, unfortunately, uh, that dopamine can work through another pathway. So there's a lot of different pathways that we talked about. One's called the nigrostriatal pathway. That's a heavy dopaminergic pathway. Another one is that it can actually kind of work via what's called the mesocortical and mesolimbic pathways. And so what can happen with this is that these control a lot of our... Uh, I'd say more of like emotional kind of aspects of our lives, our memory, our, uh, our inhibition kind of things. So if you're kind of really increasing this pathway, it can have a very profound effect on the patient's overall attitude and outlook on life. <laughs> In other words, they could develop delirium. Um, they could develop agitation. Um, they could develop maybe a psychosis. Um, I'm not even kidding. Sometimes patients develop like loss of inhibition. So they say things or do things that are way out of character. Um, or maybe they have like just loss of maybe they're going out and gambling and doing things that they generally would not do. And so that's the things that you really want to watch out for um, in this patient population with that. And then I think the last thing to think, well, two more things to think about is that when you have a patient who's on levodopa, oftentimes what you'll notice is, is that the patient may be getting higher doses or they're getting it more frequently. Let's say that a patient for some reason, I don't know, they, they start taking 
increasing doses of their levodopa. When you get a lot of levodopa that's crossing the blood-brain barrier, it may sound like a great thing. Oh, I'm going to increase my motor movement. But what if it's excessive? So the point where you're causing so much dopamine release onto the striatum that the motor movements are super, super excessive, it can actually lead to something abnormal motor movements called dyskinesia. Um, and so sometimes they can literally look like they're dancing. So they can have like what's called chorea. Um, where they're like, you know, they're all over and jerking all over the place. Um, they can have like this kind of snake or writhing like movements of their kind of fingers called athetosis. Um, they could just look restless. They can't sit still. They're kind of like constantly moving and shrugging and, and that's called akathisia. So these are definitely things to watch out for with these kind of like higher levels of, um, of dopamine within those pathways. The last thing I think that's really important with L-DOPA is really, really important here is the on-off phenomenon. So basically, as patients who have Parkinson's disease experience, this disease is not curable. So it's a continual kind of way of being able to treat symptoms and do your best to prevent the progression of the disease. Unfortunately, it may continue regardless of what we do. But the neurons become degenerated, right? You lose more neurons that are capable of producing dopamine. And L-DOPA depends upon dopaminergic neurons. If you don't have dopaminergic neurons, you're not going to be able to even utilize L-DOPA. So it becomes a waste. So what happens is, is that as patients kind of continue to get worse and worse and have more degeneration of their neurons, they have less neurons available to utilize L-DOPA. And so they start to experience worsening symptoms with their L-DOPA doses. And so what would you think to do? Well, well, maybe if I increase the dose, but then what do you do if you increase the dose? Then you end up with dyskinesias, you end up with adverse effects, nausea, vomiting, you know, mesolimbic, mesocortical pathways like hallucinations and delirium, psychosis, or you end up with dyskinesia. So that's not a good idea to increase the dose. What if I keep the dose the same, but I give it more frequently? In other words, I decrease the time interval between when I first take the dose to my second dose, to my third dose, to my fourth dose, to my fifth dose, whatever it may be. So I may unfortunately have to take that drug up to six times a day. But if it's a keeping my dose on the lower end to prevent adverse effects and still giving me that on phase where I'm actually having the effect of dopamine, I'm having improved movement, I'm not akinetic, I'm not hypokinetic, I'm not having any bradykinesia, that's a benefit. So that's one way that we can do that. One way is we can keep the dose the same, but we can give it more frequently. The other concept here is trying to prevent the, <laughs> think about it the other way. So I'm giving L-DOPA, which is depending upon those neurons to be present. What if I try to increase a drug that actually acts like dopamine? So I don't, have, I don't depend upon dopaminergic neurons now. What were those drugs? The dopamine agonists. So I can keep them on L-DOPA, but instead of giving it more frequently, maybe I add in a dopamine agonist. Or I prevent the breakdown of dopamine. So in other words, I'm trying to keep more dopamine present in the synapses. So what's those drugs? The MAOB inhibitors, the COMT inhibitors may be potential drugs to add on here. And then if they're in the akinetic crisis, so they're severe akinasia, then what's that other drug that I said that we can give? We can give uh, amantadine. There's one other drug that if it's really, really bad, you can consider. It's called apomorphine, but I'm not going to go down that route. Okay. But I think that's the key things that you can see with anything that really kind of increases dopamine. So you'll see this with, guess what other drugs? Dopamine agonists. You can see this with amantadine. You can see this with MAOB inhibitors. You can see this with COMT inhibitors. So all of these may have very similar effects, except for the on-off phenomenon. That's pretty classic primarily to L-DOPA. Okay, so don't forget that. 
Additional things to watch out for with some of these other drug categories, especially with the dopamine agonists. Um, the reason why bromocryptine uh, probably isn't as much utilized is because it can cause a lot of like, it can cause um, fibrosis, like pulmonary fibrosis. Um, and it can even cause like very large swelling of the hands. Um, so pulmonary fibrosis is a big one. It can even cause vasospasm. So it can increase the risk of coronary artery disease and, you know, potentially having an MI. So stay away from those um, in, in that particular situation. But otherwise, the non-ergots are um, relatively well tolerated other than just, again, the similar effects to L-DOPA. Amantadine, um, generally watch out for any kind of like peripheral edema, levita reticularis, and ataxia, kind of things to watch out for. MAOB inhibitors... So there is this, this very small, very slight risk of, um, a hypertensive crisis. I would say it's relatively low risk. Um, but if patients are taking an MAOB inhibitor, a very high dose, and they happen to get tyramine into their body. So, um, they're eating a lot of cheese or chocolate or something that contains a lot of tyramine within their food. Um, that potentially theoretically could cause a massive um, norepinephrine release um, onto their heart and blood vessels, which can cause a abrupt and acute rise in their blood pressure and cause a hypertensive crisis. I'd say that's way more common with MAOA inhibitors, but at very high doses of MAOB inhibitors, you get a little bit of MAO, uh, monoamine A inhibition as well. So it becomes a little bit less specific um, for the MAOB enzyme as you increase your doses really, really high. So not something that you'll commonly see, but something to keep an eye on. Um, and then the same concept here is um, just watching out potentially for um, that, that effect. I'd say that's the primary thing. I wouldn't even go down the rate of other pathology because they're not that common. The last thing I would say is um, the COMT inhibitors. So what things should we watch out for with those? I already kind of hit that a little bit, and that's the, the tolcopone. Um, it can really cause some nasty hepatotoxicity and fibrosis of the liver. So just be cautious of that as well. But I think the biggest thing to watch out for with these drug categories is, again, any dyskinesias. So the akathisia, the athetosis, the choreiform movements that you see at high doses, the arrhythmias, especially primarily with L-DOPA. So tachycardia is postural hypotension, but then the other ones is the effect on the hematic center in the medulla, nausea, vomiting, and then the effects on the mesocortical mesolimbic pathway. So hallucinations, anxiety, delirium, psychosis, loss of inhibition, increased gambling addiction, things of that effect. Those are things to watch out for. And then dopamine agonists, bromocryptine, watch out for fibrosis of the pulmonary system and vasospasm. And then amantadine, edema, levita reticularis, and ataxia. And then again, COMT inhibitors watch out for hepatotoxicity. And the MAOB inhibitors watch out for that very low risk of hypertensive crisis. But that would really cover the adverse effects, Rob. All righty. And that does it for this episode. Parkinson's disease medications is done. We hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, that was a lot of fun, Zach. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Nishners, I hope that you guys really did like it. And I hope you learned a lot. And uh, thank you. Love you. And as always, until next time.